Hello, everyone. My name is Phil Calvert, and a very warm welcome to the Financial Advisor Mastermind and Challenge. Throughout this week, advisors, leading experts, and consultants to the financial planning profession are sharing amazing insights into just what makes a world-class financial advice business. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with someone who is well-known throughout the financial advice world and described as someone who can make the mind-blowingly tedious somewhat bearable. Uh, please welcome Managing Director of Zero Support, or Managing Partner, I think you are, Mr. Phil Young. Hi, Phil. How are you doing? Yeah, hi, how are you? I'm very well indeed, thanks. I think the last time we met was in a bar in South Africa. It, it was. Uh, just before we were due to speak at a conference to three or 4,000 financial advisors out there. It was a great event, wasn't it? I, I thought it was going to be kind of like maybe, I think it was 150 people or something like that for some reason I had in my head. When I walked in there and it was like a like an aircraft hangar full of people. Was, <laughs> it was. You were, you were up there at the time, so, and you... You, you look like you know what you're doing in that situation. So I was kind of even more terrified at that point. It, well, I, I'd it's say it's, it's one of those venues that you walk in and uh, jaw drops and uh, it takes your breath away, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting. I'm fascinated. Um, and it was great to see you there because um, I follow what's going on in the world of financial advice around the world. Um, and, you know, we've always felt, it's always been said over here in the UK that, Perhaps the Australians have been a bit ahead of us over the years, or maybe the, the Americans. But the financial advice world in the UK um, really seems to be firing on all cylinders at the moment, doesn't it? It, it, it does. And um, I mean, some of that comes out of the, the level of regulation that we get in the UK, which is, you know, it, it's ironic that there's people out there that say it's kind of admirable how much we've got on here. And if you ask most advisors, I think they might have a slightly different take on these things for it. But it's certainly, it's, um, the rest of the world's eyes are on us to see um, what's going to happen next, how far we push things, what new sort of concepts and ideas we bring in and, uh, and what can happen. At the same time, we tend to, in my, my perception is, uh, we tend to look to, to the US increasingly for technology nowadays and see what's happening over there. And sometimes, you know, I hear advisors will, will say that you know, it's, it's easier to do things and to be more interested in, in the US because there is less regu regulation. I'm not sure whether that, that, that kind of works or not, whether that stacks up, but there's definitely that perception. Um, and, and yeah, that there's um, an advisor a few years ago said to me something that always stuck in my head where he said, um, I've kind of just accepted now that I'm, I run a franchise of the FCA. <laughs> you know, they control a lot around the pricing, the way in which I can deliver my service for people. I've got a degree of flexibility, but it, it feels like a franchise. And I thought it was, it was kind of a sad thing. I don't think it was meant as a, as a compliment necessarily at the time. Um, but I can see how, how at times that comes in. I, I think there's actually a lot more flexibility and freedom than people, people think and realise. But the, the, there's clearly, um, yeah, there's a, a regulation in the UK that's, that's been interested in um, in setting some clear parameters and, uh, and doing certain things at the same time, I think they're under an enormous amount of pressure right now. With the, uh, in particular, with things like DB transfers and what's going on there, yeah. um, the, the fingers are about to be to be to start being pointed seriously. I've been watching the debate around contingent charging just the last week or so. I mean, there's an article I need to write, and I was like, right, that's that's something that's uh, that's an interest, which I think. I think a lot of that's a red herring. We're in a position where we're blaming kind of concepts like contingent. You know, contingent charges never has never advised anybody. Um, I'm not entirely convinced that you would get much better advice all of a sudden by changing the charging model. I can see advantages and disadvantages to it, 
got MPs getting involved as well. You know, MPs have been at the forefront of pensions, freedom and choice and things like that. Um, the regulator will be nervous about getting the blame for this and advisors are obviously going to get the blame for it. Um, there are individuals where the finger's going to be pointed at and blaming it on contingent charging feels like a way of avoiding that for the time being. But uh, I think eventually a, a day of reckoning awaits on some of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. When we look over to the United States, do you think there's anything that we really should be learning from them? I think um, in the US and also in places like South Africa as well, I've always believed that um, necessity is the mother of invention. Um, <clears throat> and some of the, some of the, the technologies that they've adopted, which are fairly basic, simple things, um, rather than big, bowl the ocean stuff that, that you expect to see come up here, are really just born out of necessity. So the, the geography, for example, in the US, it is a very, very big country. There are more advisors out there, but the, the geography is actually absolutely huge to cover. Um, so just using things like um, like Skype or Zoom as we're doing right now, that you know, there seems to be quite a prolific take up of these sorts of technology out there, which when you're in, in the UK, most in my experience, most advisors tend to look after a, um, a client bank that are predominantly, not all of them, but predominantly within about a 40 minute drive away. Um, if you live in London, you're, you're perhaps a bit less addicted to, to your car as you, as you are yeah. doing in other parts of the country, but most people are driving around uh, rather than getting a train or public transport to go and see clients. Increasingly, people are, are coming into, into advisors' offices anyway to do stuff. But I do think, uh, particularly if you're looking after clients that are, are already working, are not retired, and, and time's precious for them, there's just a big adoption of simple technologies that I think advisors in the UK could pick up on. Things like DocuSign, which I've raved about for years. You know, we, we, in, in my days at 360, we picked up on, on that. And... Um, just not making people use pens and stupid things like that anymore. I'm, I'm really pleased I've got a meeting later on this afternoon with uh, someone from uh, Origo. Um, yeah, they're interested now as well as sort of you know, getting rid of getting rid of biros and, and adopting paperless signature right throughout the whole of the industry. We've worked yeah. out within well, one of our roles at, uh, at Sense at the network there. We, we think now that with the exception of possibly one piece of paper, which is between us and and, and some of the, the business owners, which needs to be signed as a deed. Um, there is absolutely nothing that the network requires, whether it's between us and the ARs and the advisors or between the advisors and the clients that actually needs a wet signature anymore. Um, but most platforms and product providers and fund managers aren't, aren't that progressed with that thinking right now. And there may well be good reasons in some areas for that, but um, I'm keen to really push on that side of things. So I think the things that I actually think are better progressed in places like the, the US um, are, are born out of just, um, you know, it's, it's small ticket things that are available here right now, not a kind of all-encompassing massive new back office system that will make the client a cup of tea and all the rest of it. So I think there's lots yeah. of incremental gains that we can, we can make out of here. Yeah, yeah. We might explore that a bit more. I read some statistic the other day. Apparently in the United States, um, every day, there are 20,000 financial advice seminars. Yeah. Face-to-face -face stuff. So, yeah, we're using all the technology and um, being able to meet clients like that, but apparently there's, you know, there's still quite a thirst to, for, for consumers to see the whites of the eyes of the financial advisor. And, uh, but 20,000 a day, that, that kind of – well, it's a big place, obviously, and there's a lot more advisors over there. But um, 
uh, seminars has all been, always been one of my hobby horses over here that, that we just don't see enough advisors getting on their feet in front of people. We can get, I think we can get um, hooked a little bit too much on the technology of communication. Yeah. Um, when in actual fact, and I was talking to somebody earlier about this this morning, trust, uh, the ability to meet someone, get a sense of who they are. The internet is great up to a point, but um, we, ju we just aren't doing enough of that stuff in my yeah. opinion. I, I totally agree. I think the, um, as I said, the, the, there are a lot of face-to-face -face meetings which are a slug where you know, it's advisors turning up with bits of paper that I do think can be done a lot more efficiently. You know, sitting down with somebody and going through the paperwork side of things. Like, in, in a lot of cases, it's just I will just sign whatever you put in front of me at that point. In time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those are the sorts of things that can get rid of. But uh, yeah, in, in terms of ways of getting in front of people and getting in front of the clients and stuff like that, then um, what? What's, what's strange in a way is we actually know what works. You know, you can, you can look at your own metrics, you can look at the figures and see that things like seminars and, and stuff like that just generally tends to uh, to generate a level of interest. But it, it, it requires a couple of things. And this is kind of a something that I just see in businesses across the board. The, the ones that win and the ones that are successful aren't necessarily ones that are being highly innovative. It just comes down to, to discipline uh, and a bit of stamina and, and organising events. Um, just marketing full stop actually requires um, some machinery and cons consistency and, and persistency around it just to keep hitting people with messages rather than you know, spend some money on a one-off campaign and expect the money to come and the clients to come rolling in, which yeah, yeah. Know, doesn't happen. I don't think there's a marketeer really in the world that would actually tell you that it, that it is going to happen that way. Yeah, yeah. We better just put in context who you are because there'll be one or two youngsters who, uh, who don't Good actually Lord, know. No. <laughs> don't know who Phil Young is, and I thought, well, how do we how do we best uh, describe Phil Young? And I thought the best thing to do would be take a couple of things off your LinkedIn profile. Now, first oh, right. of all, so uh, Bank Hall will probably be the first place that people know you from. Some while ago, I think. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was a good while ago. Yeah. And then you were MD of Three Sixty. Did you actually set up Three Sixty in the first place? It wasn't just me. It was um, it was a, it was a bunch of us who were. Um, Kind of the blue collar workers, if you like, at um, uh, at Bank Hall at the time, um, and we kind of left and felt at the time that we could we could set something up and do something in a yeah. slightly different way from from the way that those guys had done done it. So um, yeah, it wasn't just me on my own setting up, um, but um, yeah, there was a, a bunch of shareholders involved in it. Yeah, yeah, by accident we ended up creating our own succession plan because we're all of different ages different skill sets and stuff yeah. like that so um yes yeah, so, uh, when we when we eventually sold 360 which was back in 2010 now um i was myself and uh, russell who's still there now uh laura chuck who's still there now you know th there were a number of people who were smaller shareholders and uh, were in the younger sort of age bracket that, that stayed on. Some people wanted to retire, some people wanted to do other things. So it all worked out pretty well. Yeah, yeah. So you've been described as some one guy says, I've known Phil for some time in a business capacity, both through my time at Bankall. He's a highly gifted financial services professional with the unusual ability to fit comfortably across the wider financial services spectrum with a deep knowledge of technology, product strategy and delivery. And another chap said, from our discussions about how wraps and platforms would evolve, that's an interesting one, Phil's continued to be at the forefront of the curve and always well worth talking with. Unfortunately, his taste in football is on a par with mine. 
<laughs> so tell us how, uh, what it is you do now and how you help uh, advisors. Um, so I guess, I guess what I do now is use the, use the experience that I've built up over the years, uh, both um, almost acting a, a little bit of the, the kind of pooling the collective knowledge of, of what's going on amongst advisory firms. I, I, I've done that throughout my whole career. People have always picked up the phones and run me on and said, what's going on and effectively what they want to know is what are people doing that's working and what yeah. are people doing that's that isn't working that I should just avoid and just avoid the kind of distraction with it all and we all know that there's a million shiny new things that are out there at any point in time um, it's very easy to get distracted as an advisor and kind of um, and, and off down a, a particular rabbit hole that's, that's not really gonna gonna benefit your business so yeah. Um, there's an element of that, just bringing that kind of experience. There's also an element of bringing my experience of being in a in a startup business, as it was at the time, um, moving, uh, growing that business and building it up and starting to formalise it, selling it to a, a big corporate entity and, and dealing with them. You know, I, was, I was still there for seven years afterwards, sold it, running the business, um, and how all that feels along the way. So a lot of the... Um, so there's quite a lot of chats with, that I have with people who are in particular um, wanting advice on how to take the business from what's been effectively a fairly informal lifestyle business over the years and how to grow that and evolve it and formalise it a little bit more, potentially around an exit strategy. I mean, but it doesn't necessarily need to be around an actual sale. But it, from my point of view, unless we have kind of a, a five-year plan is what I generally build with, with most businesses, um, unless you have a sense of tra trajectory and a sense of motion in the business and a, and a, and a destination to aim towards and um, you know, growing the capital value or the income level or whatever gives you all of those sorts of things. Yeah. yeah. Um, with, without that, you tend to bumble along. So people, a lot of people pick up the phone to me and want to chat when they're kind of, not necessarily as just new startups, but when they've been in the business for five, six, seven years and they're kind of saying, it's okay, but I don't really know where I take this now. I don't really know where mm. uh, where we kick on from here and where we get to. So um, that, that's something that I've had experience myself on. There's, there's other people that I'll talk to around the sharp end of things when they come to sale as well. And uh, you can get a huge amount of advice out there from uh, lawyers, accountants, etc. Uh, I've got some of that knowledge, not quite the same level of depth. There's just some of the some of the real experts out there. Um, but I understand the mechanics of it. I think what's important, what people want to speak to me about, though, is the um, is the emotional side of things. When you come to right. sell your own business, um, you do go on a bit of an emotional roller coaster ride, and there is uh, throughout the whole process there is actually um, a real shift in the power dynamics between the buyer and the seller. So you know you'll be courted by people quite heavily in the in the buying you know, when, when you put yourself up for sale, if you like. A lot of people don't want to put themselves formally on the market and go to a tender process, mm -hmm. even though that might actually generate more, a better price, if you like. But there's a, So there's a discomfort around saying that you're going to sell. And that, that's interesting. You know, that's worthy of exploration as to why in the first place, because some people don't really want to do it, but feel as though they should do. Um, there's, well, yeah, when you sign the heads of terms, um, none of that's binding, so you don't have to agree to anything at the back end of that process. But it does it does um, provide a degree of exclusivity, so you can't talk to anybody else during that that particular period in the head to terms. If you've gone through a formal process and then you're back on the market at the end of it, yeah. then obviously <clears> it's a bit like putting your house up for sale and people saying, 
that's been on the market for 12 months there's, there must be something wrong with it or you know so there's, there's, there's kind of little little things and little ebbs and flows along the way and then when it gets to the crunch state you know even post sale that's when a lot of the problems start to, right. to come out so I, my, my advice generally to people in that process is to basically be as honest with yourself first of all and a lot of people aren't really that honest with themselves and also with with the buyer or vice versa if you, you buy another company as to what's going to happen um, after the after the, the money's exchanged hands and after the, the contract's been signed. Well, I tend to find that where where there's a lot of grey area where it's where where they've kind of fudged over these things just to get a deal done and that happens on both sides of the, the, of the party. That's where everyone's got a different thought ahead as to what's going to happen and, and there's usually a you know, there's a row that, that emerges at the back end of things. That somebody, yeah. somebody told me once, um, and again, it's these kind of little nuggets that always stuck with me, um, with a lot of experience in this area, said the best deals are always either very friendly or very hostile, uh, because in those circumstances, regardless, you know, even with a hostile one, you know exactly what's going to happen on the other side of things. So there's no grey area. Everybody knows that they're going to lose the jobs or whatever it's going to be. Mm. Um but it's the grey area, really, which people think that they're doing the right thing just to be friendly, just to be nice, and just to get there. It's when when people say what they, they think that the other party wants to hear, and just to get a deal done uh, on the other side of the fence, on the other side of the deal, that's where it tends to start to unravel. Yeah. I mean, I guess we could uh, go down several rabbit holes and we could talk about the joys of MIFID 2 or GDPR. Um, but no if joy, people are... No joy there. We won't go there, no. But I know there's a sort of areas that, that you sort of dig deep into and, and help uh, have helped advisors with. One of the things I see quite a lot in our forums is advisors talking about um, getting their business proposition right now. Yeah. You know, we're in a fee world now. Um, and I think a number of advisors are, are kind of waking up to the idea, well, actually, we've got to offer something that people will be prepared to pay a fee for. Um, or we might just go visit our friend Google instead. Um, what are the sort of things that you see going on within financial advice firms, presumably at board level, and how they're handling this, well, perhaps with a view to building a better business for that eventual sale? I, th I think the, um, there's been a, an overemphasis perhaps on the initial sales part of things. Uh, in, in my experience, lot, lots of advisors report back to me when I push them on it, and, and they'll take training in this area along and like, well, you know, is this really where the problem is? Um, they'll tell me that the, the conversion rates when the sign from of that new client are through the roof. It's kind of, you know, over 95%. You look at thing, you, you don't, you don't really need a lot of help at that, that point in time. Um, of course, at that point, the, the client's not really experienced any, any trophy, you know, the actual service. So it's kind of taken on trust and it's taken on, on the belief that it's something you're going to need at that point. Um, I think increasingly now where I'm seeing um, an emphasis on, and I think this is the, the right place to put, uh, put the emphasis is on, on the ongoing service of the client, um, which hasn't really had the sort of the level of attention that it deserves. But my, my view, which is intentionally controversial once to try and you know, disturb people into action, I guess, to an extent, is that... Yeah the majority of annual review meetings are account management meetings for the benefit of the advisor to make sure that the client stays around as opposed to anything of major value to the, to the, to the client. Um, 
I know people will argue with that and everyone does it slightly differently, but, uh, but I think if you start with that in mind and think, is that actually really what, what I'm doing in these meetings? Am I just ticking some boxes and making sure that the client's still happy and that I can go away and do, do very little for the next 12 months or yeah. so? Um, we know most of the margin is in that part of it. Most people link, uh, link margin, link cost in particular in the initial piece of advice and in many cases will make knowingly make a loss on it because there's there's more more fat in it further down the line for clients. But I, I found, and I've looked at the uh, analysis across the board in, in different industries, different, um, different parts of financial services as well, is that people tend to question the value of something uh, where it's an ongoing relationship after and the tipping point seems to be about five years it's kind of a five-year rich where all of a sudden people forget what you did in the early days which which would potentially have been uh, loss leading or you know you wouldn't have made any real profit on it after five years you might if you look at the, the lifetime value of that client you might be making some money off them at that point in time you might be balancing itself out what people do tend to forget the amount of effort and how good it felt in the first couple of years because it felt like you were really kind of moving things on an awful lot in your life. Uh, it becomes a bit tick over after five years and you start to kind of question those things. So I think it definitely is worth thinking about how that, you know, how that pans out and, and, and how you can start to change the type of value that you add over a period of time. That's and what those account management meetings, you know, mm. what those client meetings need to look like. There's, um, there's, a, there's a couple of sort of things in particular that, that people are looking at that, that I think are interesting at the moment. One is that there's people interested in looking after younger clients, which is more of a battle. So a, a designing propositions around that. Uh, my advice to them is to try and calculate what the lifetime value of a client would be. Um, you know, if, you look at, if you look at providers, for example, offering junior licenses, there's not that many of them that do it because of the margins that you make are small. I actually think if you looked at the lifetime value of those clients, assuming that a fair number of them stay, you know, leave the money invested, which is what the research that I've seen so far suggests, mm. um, then that, that paints a very, a very different picture. And indeed, uh, I, I think longer term, the values of, of advice businesses will start to become, you know, it, it will reflect a younger client bank. You know, that if you've got a client bank that are all age 80, if you're going to buy that business, You've got to price in the fact that you're not going to hang back. Yeah, but really, what you, it, the value of the business is what, what am I buying? What's the value of it? And how long am I going to hold, hold on to that for? We know that if you're buying 80-year-olds in particular, then you're not going to hold on to that money for that long. And we also know that um, there's, there's loads of, of research, both in the US and the UK at the moment, uh, to suggest that people just sack you know, that a younger generation will sack the parents' advisor on good. It's the same with uh, husbands and wives as well. If um, if the if the, the advisor hasn't really been dealing with someone's wife or husband to that extent, um, they tend to get sacked up after that's you know, right, yeah. one spouse has died that they tend to deal with. I'd like to explore that a bit. I mean it's it's always been a um an issue this about should we go for younger clients or shall we just focus on the clients that we have now before we retire or, or sell the business? Um, in fact, I'm meeting someone in a couple of days time who specializes in helping professionals to start having conversations with the next generation down who may become clients in three to five years time. I mean, do we have to look that far out? Do you think to attract uh, those younger clients? I, I think you've got to, um, I think you've got to pick 
pick your market really. Um, I'm a big fan um, of, of advisors being being niche, particularly for the you know, smaller businesses, mm. which 95% of, of advice businesses out there are small businesses. Yeah. Um, if, if you're going to say sell solar, I, I think at the moment the, the average um, the average advised client age is around 62. So it's in the mid 60s anyway. Yeah. Um, it fundamentally, for all the kind of arguments about what name financial advisors should give themselves, whether it's planners or advisors and whatever, wealth yeah. managers, uh, fundamentally, I believe that the majority of advisors are retirement planners. And you could almost say that's what we actually do in specialising. I think a lot of people would get a lot more business in through the door if they actually gave themselves that, that, that label because that's what really yeah. focusing on. Um, dabbling at pitching to um, a younger generation, I think, will be successful if you're going to dabble at that and just do a little bits and pieces of it. You might attract a few more clients. You might retain it a little bit more along the way. Um, so I do think it needs quite a lot of thought behind it. If you're going, it what doesn't work is offering out a service to younger clients, which is just a kind of poor man's version of your the, the, the service that you're offered to your main client. You almost need to pull the whole thing apart and, and say, well, actually, if we're going to pitch to people that are um, young professionals in the 30s, they don't need advice about all the things that I'm dealing with from existing clients. They might need a different fee model. They might need debt advice. They might need a load of things that a lot of advisors haven't, haven't touched for years, even things like mortgages, insurance, all these things. Yeah. A lot of guys out there have gone down, fully down the wealth route, uh, dealing with people with that are retiring or retired with established wealth um, and, and don't need to touch mortgage. And I kind of get why that's the case. They don't, they, you know, in a lot of cases, they don't need to worry too much about insurances and, and don't bother with it at all in many cases. So I think you need to kind of accept whether you're in that market or not. Yeah, yeah. Really apply a good degree of thought to, to what you're doing. I've seen um, a few firms starting to really get their heads around this, at least think about this now. And the the common thread I'm seeing between them is they is they're focusing on young entrepreneurs. Yeah, they're in their thirties. These are people who are just brimming with ideas, coming out with quite often tech companies. And the advisors are seeing a role for them as not necessarily retirement planners, but yeah. more like fancy life coaches, to put it uh, uh, in a simplistic way. Um, and perhaps so there's a role for life planners or lifestyle financial planners. They may find it easier to get into a younger market. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Uh, I, I think you're right. I mean, the, the market isn't huge, so you've got to be really good. In that market so um but uh, yeah I, I know a few guys that, that specialize in, in exactly that sort of thing they'll deal with mm. tech entrepreneurs also creative media um type yoga but it's it's really about developing a niche because you want referral business it's quite a specialized market and there are specific individuals there as well with specific needs it's difficult to be a generalist and say I'm also in in this particular niche in some cases. So I think you've got to take a take a view as to whether you're really going to commit to to going down that market as well. Whether you're really going to whether you're successful in it or not. Um, it's not something you can do in a kind of you know a little bit on the side, half-hearted sort of way. Um, and in particular, you know, your website needs to reflect all of that. The yeah. way in which you approach things, you're not going to need to wear a suit again, which is is good news if that's what suits you. But yeah. if you're turning up being, you know, the traditional IFA, 
um, it's, it's just not, not going to work. It, 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 where it works, it works absolutely perfectly. And a lot of younger advisors that have kind of really bought into the whole niche idea and will be dealing with um, tech entrepreneurs or uh, women who've been divorced or, you know, these sorts of niche areas where there's, there's very specific needs. There are, there, are, uh, there are a few things that worry me at times around it because a lot of the guys, if you take um, tech entrepreneurs, for example, um, a lot of them will... Um, maybe have several million that they've got to invest, won't necessarily, that they'll want to have a play pot of money. And I think there are dangers that if you don't, if you don't decide what your proposition is and what the boundaries of that, that service that you're going to offer are, you can get drawn into, a bit, it, advisors dealing with sports people are a classic example. It's, it's often a disaster because the advisor, because they treat the advisors like they would do their agent or their own mother to an extent. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Everything want to get into all kinds of wacky investments and all sorts of stuff and advisors sometimes don't have don't have the confidence to say no this isn't this isn't me I, I don't advise in these sorts of areas at all I think again with with certain types of clients tech entrepreneurs people with lots of money that are, that are too young to be retired and want to dabble and want to take that they almost want to be mini private equity investors in their own right and maybe put some money into one of the the mates um, yeah. firms that are setting up or those are all great ideas. You've just got to understand where your own limits are as an advisor because you're not somebody that can necessarily deal with those things. You, you know, if your role is just to protect them from spending the money that they need to keep and you're going to manage that and then the rest of it can deal with and that, that's, that's fine. Uh, some of them seem to want a kind of personal, you know, a genuine personal, almost non-exec for their lives, if you yeah. like, but you can call it a life coach or whatever, but it's... Um, a you know, non-exec for their lives, that's a... Yeah, you're building a kind of... Yeah. Um, it's people that have an advisory board of people, they might have a lawyer or an accountant, it's almost like an informal family office, if you like, mm. and it's people that they want to bring in and, and, and sort of pick the brains up. The fact that you've got you've got a responsibility that you're actually a financial advisor just means that you've got to draw those boundaries fairly clearly as well. So again, even if you're in that market and it's working well, you should think what well, hard about how, you know, what it is that you do and what you don't do as, as much as anything else. So how does this pan out for the future? I mean, we'd all like to think there's always going to be a place for high quality face-to-face -face advice, but if the demographic is clearly changing um, and the demographic is, is getting younger and we've got these people who won't necessarily, their first instinct will not necessarily to be go to a financial advisor. H how do you see the future for the whole financial advice profession as we like to call it now? Uh, I've got, I mean, I, uh, there is a counter view to it. So I looked at the stats and these come straight from, um, uh, from uh, uh, government departments of statistics and all the rest of it. Um, if you wind the clock on over the next 10 years, the, um, the, the part of the demographic that appeals to face-to-face -to -face advice right now, which is that the number one category is 60 to 70, mm. and then the next one is 70 to 80, and the third one down is sort of 50 to 60. Outside of that, there is, there is very little at all you know, in mm. terms of a younger um, age group. If you wind the, the, the UK demographic on uh, 10 years, the, the market for 60 to 70, which is the most popular one, uh, is actually going to increase by about 10%. Right. So if you extrapolate all the data out, um, which I've seen done, we think that there will be a 10% increase in people wanting advice, you know, retirement advice, if you like, which predominantly, we can, I think we can assume, is baby boomers, 
and it's more complex to retire than it ever has been at the same time as it's easy to invest. So I do think over the course of the next 10 years or so, there is still this wall of baby, baby boomer money that's hitting retirement that will just require traditional face-to-face um, advice. And you can just afford, you, know, you should be looking to tweak how that works, improve it, but there's no radical shift required, I don't think, for that. So if, if your job as an advisor is just to ride out in the next five years or so, and if you're approaching 10 years and you know that this this is a you know this is going to change dramatically and you've got a problem for it so if you're going to retire in five years as an advisor as a lot of people will do that yeah you could make a good case to say why would I bother changing um if you look beyond that five that 10 year period uh, and you go into different um you know, a different profile of, of person uh, i mean it's not it, we talk as if all of a sudden you know there's a year and everybody changes um, but I, I do think at that point in time, you will, you, people's expectations will change once we get to that point, and they will expect. But my, my own view, which is based on my own experience, is you almost want um, you want your money on a on a kind of self-directed platform, and you want very expensive. And I, I almost don't care how much that costs, yeah. but an expensive help button that you that you hit that says, "Here's all my money. It's on a platform. It's invested in these areas." You tell me where to go in and what to do and how to structure it, and I will pay you for advice along the way. Um, I think the analogy that I make right now is that advisors at the moment feel a little bit like uh, an old-fashioned shopkeeper. You know, you, go in, you, you used to go into a, into a shop, you'd see a guy behind the counter with a with a, you know, with a with a long coat on, and all the stuffs in the background somewhere. So you have to move to their platform, you know, whatever they've got their investment proposition. Yeah. You don't really go. Like as you do into a supermarket and wander around, you can see everything that's available at that point in time. So I think there will be an expectation further down the line for um, for for the advisor to ride alongside you in that journey and help you with the with what it is that you buy and what you do and all the rest of it, yeah. as opposed to being the guy that stood behind the the counter, at, you know, dealing with uh, questions for four candles and, and all that. Quite. Stuff. So with, with that in mind, I mean, does the profession, is it going to be appealing to younger advisors? This comes up time and time again. How do we get youngsters into the profession? Yeah. Do they want to come in? It's, it's absolutely nuts at the moment. Because if, if you sat down, I, I know plenty of, plenty of lawyers, for example. I'm a sort of failed lawyer in my own, my own right. Um, and the vast majority of them say to say, you know, we would never advise anyone to get into the law to, to, to become a solicitor because it's terrible in a, in a real state at the moment. Yeah. Uh, accountancy, I think, is going to be heavily disrupted over the course of the next few years. The, the easy accountancy stuff is just going to get wiped out by stuff like zero and things like that are already doing the kind of basic bookkeeping and filling the forms in. Now, if you're going to pay for an accountant, it's going to have to be some proper quality advice that you need for it. And most of those professions know it, but the, you know, people in them will, uh, will admit that. The, um, if you think about becoming a financial advisor, um, I can't think of any other profession where you can earn as much money for something as enjoyable that fits a, a really good lifestyle. It's very flexible. You know, you can you can mm. kind of work whatever hours you want. You can work really hard. You can you can work uh, part time fairly easily. I think if you want to as an advisor, um, you can really craft the, the role as how you want to. It involves 
having chats with people, getting involved with people, talking to them. So if you enjoy that sort of thing, then great. Yeah. Um, and, the, and there's a way, because of the way in which it's structured, because of the, 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 you know, the value that's provided, you can make a lot of money doing it that way. Even the yeah. barriers to entry for setting up your own business if you wanted to do that are relatively low compared to most of the professions out there. So it's a, it's a great career to get into. And one of my frustrations is there's been, there's been a lot of talk about how do we get clients engaged with financial planning. Most advisors I know have got fewer people at the door. They don't, they don't need more clients. Um, the main issue and the constraint is the amount of advisors that are around there almost at the moment. So yeah. if you went around most universities and actually got people in front of advisors and said whatever's in your head at the moment um, is, a, is a thing of the past it's you know there isn't commission anymore it's a genuine profession or certainly a burgeoning profession that's coming through yeah. there should be a queue at the door of people wanting to get wanting to become a financial planner and just isn't at the moment I think there's, there's, there's certainly people that, uh, that I've spoken to that are looking to retrain from being solicitor or an accountant and stuff like that because they've actually seen the value of it and, and, and what a great career it can be so i think there's quite a lot of work to be done to get more people into the industry as an actual planners and advisors not necessarily just as uh, as clients interesting because uh, otherwise it's just going to carry on being a, an expensive thing and, and relatively inaccessible for people to, to to get hold of the right people so kind of um starting to wrap up if we're, if we're looking forward over the next five years or so and firms want to start upping their game a bit um what sort of things should they be focusing on within their businesses right now to, to really make themselves look attractive in the future but i guess most of the stuff that i um, that i tend to do comes really from the top down so um yeah i'm very big on the amount of management information that's available in the business uh, yeah. if you're running things on a on a bit of a kind of you know it's all a bit sort of finger in the air a bit ish um, you, you need to have a plan in place. It doesn't need to be anything. It can be on one piece of paper, which is to say, we want a business that's worth this in X number of years, or we want a business that kicks out this amount of income in X number of years. Um, or it could be, we want to generate this amount of income because I, as a business owner, want to sit back and not effectively work in the business full time. So, so we need a plan that fits around that. But there needs to be a sense of direction or a sense of trajectory in there. Um, you need to have... Um, at least I would say three years, ideally accepting the fact that years four and five are a little bit made up, but you know, a cash flow model that goes through that five year plan that says, yeah, advisors are increasingly used to do cash flow models for, for their own clients and yet mm. don't do it to put in their own business. If you haven't got that kind of modeling in place, then you won't know what you should be charging in the first place or what's going on. Yeah, what's going on. You won't know how many people you need to recruit over that period of time. You won't know what adjustments you need to make now to, to, to cope with the fact that in five years' time, this is going to be, you know, it might be less profitable uh, based on your growth plan. So you can make the adjustments now, knowing that it's going to work in five years and just keep tack on it. Exactly the same as the, the, the whole sales point that people make to, to clients about about why they should use cash flow model. You know, yeah. you're going to make, need to make changes and adjustments along the way, but you can start making those adjustments early enough on to have a, a big impact further down the line. And I tend to find that that planning is not, not really there. And usually it's because everyone's bumbling along and, you know, it seems to kind of work, but they're not quite sure why, yeah. uh, which is fine if you just want to carry on doing that. But if you really want to kind of grow with a sense of um, an end game or a sense of direction, which could just be succession within your firm or whatever, you need to have that kind of structure in place and you need to have 
you need to have the MI in place as well to be able to tell you if I pull this lever, then this is what happens. If I do this, then it, you know, it's going to cause a lot of disruption. It's not really going to have a noticeable impact on, on the business. That we've got. Yeah, yeah. But there's, there's a lot of planning and there's a bit of hard work involved in, in getting that in place. The upside is that once you've got that plan done once, um, the, the, the business kind of almost takes care of itself. Um, you know, I've, I've, even in my, my latter days at 360, um, it just, you know, we had things planned out to the nth degree and it just became kind of quite dull as a business to run because I knew how many people I needed to recruit, when I needed to recruit them, where to get them from. You know, we, we had stuff planned generally well in advance like that. And there's always things that crop up out of the blue that take you off tack, but the fundamentals of the business are all, all there and planned out. So it makes life a lot easier. That's really interesting. So um, going back to where we started, just looking around the world, if we look at um, mature markets, not so mature markets, and then we come back to our market here in the UK, are we missing any big tricks here in the UK, which maybe they've got a, got a handle on elsewhere? Is, is there something our profession is, hasn't quite mastered yet here? I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything. I, I think it, even even uh, the technology in, in America, I've talked to, to guys, to advisors out there, and some have said it's, it's absolutely rubbish, the technology out here as well. So it's, it's the same all year. I think there are... There are some incremental gains that people have got that they don't they don't implement things like you know using using Zoom as we're doing right now with clients or using DocuSign because yeah. they're waiting for something bigger to they're waiting for somebody else to solve the problem for them almost. Um, I think the regulator has driven things driven the, the agenda quite a lot and will become a bit complacent and, and kind of waiting to be told what to do to, to move on to the next step and, and what happens next with it all. So there is a little bit of a cultural thing in the UK where we're actually looking to platform or or the FCA also wants to kind of drive the, the change yeah. that goes forward in, in our business. I think in other in other countries where they haven't had that that big shock. Um, they've, they've learned how to drive the business forward themselves a little bit more. They're, 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 some of the people out there are a bit more self-motivated to, to right. do things, mm. to make those sorts of changes in their business. But the fundamentals of running the business are the same. You know, it's basically you know, make sure that you've got a plan, figure out what things are going to stop you from, from hitting those objectives, and make sure that you've got the, the financial model in place and you can adjust and tweak and, and, and change as you want to for it. Um, but without that sense of, you know, it's that, that agency that sits in your business to say, you know, we can, we're going to actually push things forward. And I think that's kind of sometimes a thing that's, that's a little bit missing in the UK. Yeah, interesting. Um, that's been absolutely fantastic, Phil. Thank you. Um, we're asking each of the people that, that I'm interviewing to kind of come up with a little mini challenge uh, that they might be able to set for our financial advisor viewers. Um, if you're going to set a, a challenge for them, I don't know, over the next week, month, years, 10 years, whatever, what, what, would, you, uh, what would you challenge people to be doing? I think uh, the, um, harking back again to the, uh, the, 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 the question around recruiting more planners into, into the profession full stop, um, but the, the, the number one, outside of regulatory issues and stuff that pops up from time to time, the number one complaint that I get from advisors is that they struggle to recruit people. Right. The challenge that I tend to throw back is if, if you recruited a, a brand new advisor, let's say a graduate or whatever, somebody fresh into the, into the profession tomorrow, what would, what would their first 100 days look like? What would their... Could you, put to, could you articulate a career plan for two years? There's one firm that I talk to that give 
that have absolutely no problem with recruiting the brightest and the best from their local university, but they give everybody that joins a five-year career plan. Right. Um, so, but the challenge that I would set forward is to say, what does what does the career plan look like if you're trying to recruit anybody into your business? What does that plan look like for them, and how compelling? If you were honest with yourself, if you looked at that as, you, as your own career plan, yeah. how compelling is it for them? Phil, thank you so much. Really appreciate that. Um, so if advisors need your help or want to engage you in any way, how can uh, you and Zero Support uh, help advisors? Uh, I've, got a, I've got a website, which is zerosupport.co.uk, which generally gets um, most of the messages are spammers sending through from it. So if I accidentally <laughs> delete it, and uh, I apologise. Uh, or you can get me on uh, phil.young at zerosupport.co.uk, which is probably the best, uh, the best one. Fantastic. Phil, thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate uh, your help and your time. Uh, absolutely superb. Look forward to seeing you in another bar in South Africa on another yeah. occasion. Yeah. Uh, and for everyone watching today, thanks again for your time. I hope you found this useful, this conversation with Phil Young, and we'll see you on the next video. Thanks a lot. Cheers.